in a really great production. The costume design adds to the performance of the actors. What a character wears, how their costume is styled, purposeful choices give the viewer clues about the people that they see on screen. This can be subtle or overt, but in the hands of a master costume designer, the clothing always adds to the storytelling experience. Today, we're talking to Janie Bryant, whose masterful work you have absolutely seen on big screens and small ones. She's a Costume Designers Guild Award winner, and she won an Emmy for her work on HBO's Deadwood. She's also responsible for the iconic costuming on Mad Men. But these projects, they're just scratching the surface of her incredible body of work. From the early days of her career, working on Nickelodeon's Pete and Pete, to elaborate productions like 1923, where Janie is responsible for managing entire teams of tailors, costumers, and makers. She's generously sharing stories and insights gleaned from her truly remarkable career. We've got a literal wealth of information to share with you about costume design, especially Janie's favorite, which would be period pieces. This episode and our next one are packed full of behind-the-scenes stories that are as wonderful and thought-provoking as the productions that they occurred on. I am so very happy to introduce to you the lovely Janie Bryant. Hello and welcome everyone to today's episode of Little Red Village. As always, I am Jonathan Joseph, joined by my co-host Rachel Elspeth Gross and today's guest, Janie Bryant, an Emmy and Costume Designers Guild award-winning costume designer known for her work with AMC TV's Mad Men and HBO's Deadwood and has been cited as influential by everyone from Michael Kors to Vera Wang, Prada to Mark Jacobs, and many more. Thank you so much for joining us, Janie. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. It's it's our pleasure. Trust me, your work as someone who may or may not have had a couple of blazers from the Mad Men collection, Banana Republic, has always been really phenomenal as far as costume design goes. And, you know, this season on the podcast, we've been making an effort to really dive more into this particular side of the world of costume. And so speaking with an expert such as yourself is a privilege and a joy. And I know that our listeners are absolutely going to gain so much knowledge and information and learn about the inner workings of this side of the industry. So we're very excited to have you. Thank you. So we know, reading a little bit about your background, that you were trained in both art and fashion. And we were curious, you obviously had some opportunities to work in regular fashion. What made you pivot to costume design? You know, you know what? I studied fashion design, really. And I, I mean, my minor was costume history, but I really, that was like what I was going to do. You know, I was all into fashion and that is exactly why I studied fashion design. And then I moved to New York to go work with other designers. Well, I moved to Paris first for like a six month stay. You know, I really did not get into costume design until I, you know, I met a lot of people in New York that were film people. And the person that I met, eventually, I met her at a Christmas party. Her name was Alexandra. And she told me so much about costume design. She was costume designer. And I just, I loved, I loved what she had to say. You know, it was totally different from doing fashion design because I mean I I'm I love fashion design I just felt like it was a little bit different in the fact that it was more designing for consumers as opposed to 
what I loved about costume design was that it was period and it was for men and women and children and it was for everyone. So I really loved getting into the psychology of all the different characters within a TV show or a film. That and makes sense. That. Yeah. Think about how often you really get this idea in your head of who a character is and what they're wearing is really a part of that, how they style themselves, what they choose to wear is really visual representation, I, I would think, in a lot of ways. It is. And I mean, it's more about, it's more about the character as opposed to somebody who is, you know, just dressing for fashion. You know, it's a little bit different. It's totally, it's, it's, I mean, I love designing for, you know, the men and the women and the children and, you know, all different body shapes and sizes. And it's great. I love it. I guess you probably wouldn't have the opportunity to design for so many different types of people and shapes of people. You know, if you're just doing a women's line or a men's line. Exactly. I mean, that is that is totally a different thing. And also, you know, while you're while, you know, I design costumes, like I'm also designing it's more like custom work, if you will, custom to the character the, and, and the actor, you know, as opposed to doing a collection for, for fashion. Thinking about every single person there. You got to think about scaling the sides there and how you got all this, all the details. So, yeah. What's your favorite? Obviously, you've done so many period, iconic period reductions is it is that your preference to go back and forth I love I love period design it's my favorite it really is you know I love it so much because you know I'm creating so much the the clothing and I really I really love to put you know my stamp on every project so the designing period pieces it's really fun for me when you are designing period pieces you know naturally with Rachel and I both being fashion historians can you walk our listeners through a little bit of what your process is like in terms of research for those period pieces and, and how that process breaks down for you? Yes. I mean, I what, what happens in the beginning is that I get a script and, you know, the script is really a kind of like a Bible for what's going to be happening in the show, the time period, the place, all the characters and the background characters, you know, it's like, that really is the place in which I'm initially inspired. And then, and then I'll start doing my research. And that could be, that could be with doing it, you know, online or at Western Costume. They have a library there. So, it, you know, it comes from all those different places, getting newspapers. I mean, there's so many reference photos. Like there's all these photos that you can, you know, gather as well from many different periods. So. It is a place of getting all this information and then kind of putting it together so that, you know, what I like to do is have a period book, so to speak. And so I will separate all the different characters by their design. And then I also, you know, I also use like fabric swatches and sketches and, you know, I put all of that together. And then that's kind of like what I present to the director or the creator or the producers. That's what I show them. And I also show my crew that too, because it's very important for them to see as well, kind of like what I'm thinking. Yeah, I can see how you would need to have 
a way to explain, right? If you're, you're going to people who are in charge of the money and production itself and to show them that you understand and yeah. what your plans are, where the money is going to go and, and all of that. I to know that, yes. Like, no, especially these things mean so incredibly expensive. So my guess is with period costume that there would be more made to measure, more bespoke. Like for the actor slash character, unless for assembly, right? Like in a more modern production, you could find jeans and a t shirt that work. But for Alma Garrett, you cannot exactly. just for a jean. Yeah, so everything is, you know, especially for Deadwood, like everything was custom built, you know, for all of the actors, custom built. And then for like for the background actors of Deadwood, they were fit in different costumes from like. Western costume, American costume, that kind of thing. Because, you know, there are just like, there are so many extras that, you know, it's better to fit them in costumes that already exist. Yeah, I, I think I read in one of the articles I was reading about your work that said sometimes there's thousands of people. So maybe it was on 1923, but yeah. the idea of having to have a thousand people in parachute costume was like, yeah, it's overwhelming. Yes, in 1923, there was, I mean, I don't know, I'm guessing there was, well, when we went to, when we went to Africa and to Malta, there were, was about like 2,000 extras. And then we had, we had wow. about that many in 1923 in Montana as well. There were about 1,000 to 2,000 extras in that portion too. So there were so many extras in wherever we went. There were so many extras. <laughs> when, when, you're, when you're managing that many, you know, costumes and that scale of a production, you know, what is that workflow kind of like in terms of, is it highly preparatory where you're doing a lot of the work before you're on location? Like, what, what is that workflow like? I think a lot of people, you know, when they, when they think of costuming for that many people, it's like, where do you even, where do you even start? You know, what, what is that workflow like over pre-production and, and production? Because I think a lot of our listeners who are interested in costuming aren't necessarily aware of how the industry works in terms of those mechanics. Can you talk a little bit about what it's like to be in charge of a production of that scale and getting all those people costumed? I have what's called a, uh, a costume team that helps me fit the background. They are 705 members. And from Los Angeles, usually, you know, unless we go to other places like, you know, South Africa or Malta. So that's part of like what, how all these things are brought together, right? So I have a costume team that they fit the, they fit the extras. And I mean, I'm there with them too. And usually, you know, helping them out as far as like the pieces that I want to see you know, the things that are really important to me and that kind of thing. Because then, you know, while that is happening, while they are fitting the background, I'm usually fitting the principal cast. So it's a little bit of like running back and forth and back and forth. Yes. But before that happens, before I have my costume team fitting the costume background, I should say the background actors, I have, you know, we are there pulling the costume. So, you know, before all those fittings start, we have, you know, a, I have a team of people who are pulling costumes for the, for the actors. And so I can just all imagine. Of, all of those people are, get, exactly. 
it's all it's all gathered before we start fitting. Just because I mean, it's so much. It's so many people that you know those pieces have to be gathered before. So you know, it's like skirts and shirts and suits and you know pants and jackets and ties and collars and and regular shirts and you know all the things that you need belts and suspenders and shoes and a warehouse warehouse full of rolling (laughs) endless army of them wow i know i know it's down it does sound large the thing is is that we do have prep time to you know prepare for the show so it's not just like oh you know we have one day to prep this i mean there are many days many many days it takes it takes about 8 weeks to prep the show before we start shooting and then you know we're prepping during that that time we're shooting too because i have i have a a team a, a design team with me and so we're always prepping, you know, before the next show. So that's great. And then, you know, I have a set, I have a set team who takes care of the actors. And also I have costumers who help me take care of the background actors too. So, you know, there's all different facets of everything we do. And I also have a tailor shop who I have an amazing tailor shop. You know, we just, Every day where we, we prep it and get ready and fit the actors and poof, they're off. <laughs> I guess. I think that's one thing that I mean, costuming it like shares with. Jobs almost. You've got the actual costume design work and then there's the management of this whole team because you've got to think about, I'm sure, keeping it cohesive, making sure there's continuity issues. You're avoided, right? Is everything the same outfit in the same, worn in the same way? Yes, yeah, so I, uh, I have an amazing, I have an amazing team as I said, and the person who is kind of like second in charge of me is my costume supervisor. And she is is someone who really helps me a lot just with like all of the logistics. And, you know, she helps me with the budget and the breakdown. And so it's a lot of people that, you know, go into making a project work for sure. Absolutely. I think this is one thing. One of the things Jonathan and I end up talking with people a lot about is the everyday person doesn't see what happens behind the scenes. We don't always know or understand how much work or how many people's work. You know, we, we see the end product is great. <laughs> There's so much time and so much yeah. effort. Exactly. And, so and also, I mean, what you're really seeing is, you know, what's on screen, right? So it's like you, you know, the audience member wouldn't really know like what has been happening behind the scenes all those many months before, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, sure I, I think this is one thing that be easier than others to <laughs> master. Yeah, I think this is one thing that costuming yes, shares. Yes, it is. One thing we're very curious about, we, we spoke with Erin Ionian a few weeks ago about makeup in, in film and television production. And we were very much wanted to ask you this. How much of the costume design for a production is like dictated for you in advance how much is done in like a writer's room how much is done like the director producer pick or how much is it up to you to kind of interpret their it's, overall i guess people work differently i usually work that i decide on like what the actors are going to wear 
And I shouldn't say that it's like, I always decide. It's more just about like, I like to present ideas to the director and the creators of the show. And also, I mean, like even with Taylor Sheridan, you know, a lot of times he has an idea about, let's just say, you know, Elsa wearing a certain color and he wanted her to wear blue. And so that's why, you know, she is in that blue dress. I found that blue and navy cotton dress for her that I presented to him that he loved. So, you know, that was like one thing that he said, oh, she has to be in blue. You know, so there are things like that. And it's always like a back and forth, which is great. You know, I just I just like to go in with kind of like an idea of what it is that I'd like to see the actors in. And then, you know, like Taylor Sheridan, he may have, you know, a note of like, oh, that's great. But can't we see, you know, somebody else in this color or that color? or You know what I mean? It's it's always a back and forth. It's got to be so neat to see things grow. I mean, from it going from being an idea and then conversation and then adjustment and then all of a sudden it's real out in the world and it's on film. So we, we all get to yeah. see it. I, I know it is. It is amazing. And it's such a process, you know, it, it is really just like, you know, I can I can see something a certain way. And then, you know, I may have a fitting with that with the actor and feel like it needs to be changed on a certain level you know so it really it really just depends on you know kind of like the circumstance and who and who the actor may be or you know you never you never know it's like it's it's always kind of a process of changing I think so when the production is nearing its end or a season is coming to a close something like that what happens to all the costumes that were made I know like with western or American like you were saying you know they have a giant amount of off or whatever the right word would be. But I'm thinking about all these clothes made for specific actors, for specific characters. That- well, the, like, the, like the costumes for 1923, we have them just like on hold and we're getting ready to shoot the next one. So I'm excited about that. And then, you know, like for Mad Men, they were, you know, online being sold. Some went back to Western and American and yeah, they're all over the place, I guess you can say. <laughs> Many we'll see. Yeah, they are at different places. I mean, I think that, yeah, they just end up, they end up at, at different, different places. They really do. So you when know, you're designing something that's period, and it's like, it covers a lot of, a lot of different eras, but one thing that I was very curious about. There's things that were not invented, right, until later in time. So maybe certain types of fixtures, zippers, or I don't know, certain types of buttons or things. I was watching a couple episodes of Deadwood trying to like see if I could figure this out. And it looked like everything is very well hidden if there is secret zippers or secret things in there. Is that a big deal? Maybe I'm not phrasing this very well, but how do you how do you deal with like the realities of construction like today? And then not having it be historically inaccurate. How does that? Well, for Deadwood, everything was accurate because I just liked building the costumes that way, you know? And it was really all through doing, you know, hooks and eyes and buttonholes and, you know, just like all of those details, which were period correct. So 
you know, for Deadwood, that was really important. And for, yeah, like even all the vests that the men wore, I mean, they were all buttoned and, you know, I mean, I used to obsess about every single button that was on a man's vest. So it was all about like having like, there were certain, I'm sorry, wood buttons that were made that I had like a lot of the men wear, which were great. Yeah, I was just obsessed about like every single button that was on somebody. <laughs> you know, even when I designed 19, I mean, what was it? It was called uh, The Last Tycoon. I designed The Last Tycoon and, you know, zippers weren't created until a little bit later. And it was the show was taking place in 1936. So like the commercial use of zippers were not really used yet. So everything was like hand done. And I love doing that too. Especially, you know, it is just just the period. And I think it's important to like use those kind of details. You know, you can really, you can really see the difference between somebody getting dressed in that costume than somebody who's just putting on something that is not like period accurate, you know? So I always like to use period correct notions. As somebody who spent some time looking, I know but it's really impressive. I mean, it's really, it's amazing. And I know Jonathan and I, one of the things we have in common is we like this really detail-oriented work. We like it when it, you have to pay attention. You have to focus. You have to double chat. And if you completely understand what you're saying, it must have to be a labor of love. Because otherwise, it would not be so much fun. Well, they also have to, you know, the women also have to wear their corset. And, you know, it, it, it is all a part of just getting dressed for that period, you know? Whatever yeah. it is. I mean, if it's Deadwood or if it's Mad Men or if it's, you know, 1923 or 1883, you know, it really is about getting dressed and getting dressed even in the undergarments is so important. Yeah. And I mean, I would think that would be part of the fun from the actor's perspective of getting to put on the wall. But I'm sure some people probably prefer. <laughs> well, I would think it also helps them step yeah. into the role well, and the character. Well, you know, they, the actors, they do okay. They're pretty good. They can get through it. I mean, we, you know, the, the courses aren't tied as tightly as they would be if you were just a woman walking randomly down the street. <laughs> but yes, I mean, you know, they, the, the women, they actually do like wear the corsets, you know, snug up. It's good. So one of the things that I thought we might want to touch on that is of particular interest to me because of just the zeitgeist that we're in was your work with indigenous consultants in order to dress Tiana Rainwater, because not only does it sound like a magical experience, but consulting with members of marginalized groups is either not always done or is something that the wider world doesn't necessarily know about and what that process is like. Can you talk a little bit about what integrating someone like an indigenous consultant entails and, and what that process is like and what you've seen that's similar or haven't seen on that front in other productions? Well, that's just something that we do, like from 1883 to 1923. There are a lot of indigenous consultants that we chat with. And it was very sweet because a lot of the the clothing that the Native Americans wore 
were from Mo Bing's plenty, his his relatives. Wow. Yeah. So he brought in a lot of beautiful, beautiful, wonderful research. And we were just, my assistant designer and I were like, we have to do this. We have to recreate this. And so that's, that's how like a lot of the, the Native Americans were dressed. Now for the school, for the school, I found, I found a research photo that I showed to Mo and he loved it. He thought it was great. So we really do work like back and forth together. It's so important to have them there anyway, just because like they, we all learn from each other and like he just shows us so much and, and, and always talks to us about like what all the different tribes went through. And it's, it's really, it's an amazing thing to be a part of. So yeah, I, I, I loved having his insight there. It was great. We've talked a lot with some guests in the past and here with you now about the importance of seeing yourself, right? Having representation doesn't just matter to an adult, but having a child or a young person be able to see someone like them, either in media, on the screen, whatever, whatever the context is. And as we all know, for many years, it wasn't, you know, it was a fantasy in someone's head about what it was supposed to look like. And I really just, I think we both love, I mean, this is another example of attention to detail. We were talking with about accurate period fixtures and closures on garments, but this is so much more, even more important than that. It's real people, it's their lives, their families. And what a yeah. generous gift to bring in family pieces for, for y'all to do the research to recreate. I mean, that- they were, fo- they were photos actually. They were photos of his, of his family members. And mm-hmm. so, so we recreated all of those pieces. That'd be some pretty great inspiration right there. I can only imagine. I know. It was it was amazing. And it was it was amazing to dress the characters with all of these different all of these different pieces. The 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 cape which was used and also the coat with the different colored stripes was used and also the different hats and so we remade all of it. It was great. It was great and it was also just amazing to work with the with the Native Americans and to hear about like all of their stories and also their family stories. And it is it is really it's an important gift to work with these people. It's it's been really important. Absolutely. I mean, one thing we talk about a lot at Loret Fashion and here on the podcast is the importance of the stories that clothing and garments tell. And so much to your point earlier about the way in which an audience member looking at a film may not see all the things that really go into the costuming. They're not necessarily going to know at all that what they're looking at is based on family stories and this, this rich, personal, very personal history. Has the process of working with, those, with consultants in the Indigenous community changed the way you work? Or is it something that you feel could be more widespread within the industry. Do you think that the industry does enough work in ensuring that all productions have that access to authenticity when relaying through costume the narratives of different marginalized or other cultures that are not the dominant Western culture? I'm not sure what other productions do. Since, I mean, I haven't really been on those shows. So, I mean, they, they may, I'm not sure. I just know that what we do on 1883 and 1923 has been really, truly special. And I'm so, 
glad I mean, it comes through it comes through when you watch it you can really see that verisimilitude not to get too academic about it but it, i think when production is as diligently researched as yours are it is readily apparent and when you're a historian watching you're also subconsciously <laughs> looking for those things so i know for me when i was watching i was floored really by just the consistency because i think that's where the magic happens when you have that heavily researched consistency across yeah. the narrative that's what gets you that bullseye moment where everything comes together the actors the acting the makeup the hair and the costuming all together because when something's lacking in one way or another that's the first thing you notice i'm not going to call out the second season of bridgerton but i might <laughs> <laughs> that was okay see i don't know <laughs> that, that was a fantasy and i think that, was, you know, that 23 and 1883 are more authentic to the period for sure for sure for sure i think it's always a balance and something we've learned from both yourself and, and others that we've spoken to within the industry is it's always about striking that balance that's perfect for the script itself as you said it all it all comes back to the bible of the script and the universe that's being built that is true. It is about that. I mean, for 1883 and 1923, it, it really has been about being authentic and also just, I don't want to say staying within those lines, but there, there is like a certain color palette there. There is a certain type of costuming that is done within that show that it is more like on the realistic side. It's not like a fantasy. So I think that like that is very important as well for me because like Harrison Ford, his color palette really is dark and it is it is about staying on those dark sides. So that is like something that's really important for me. That was something that actually Taylor Sheridan really talked about a lot because he was just like, yes, he really saw him just in a dark dark palette. So for me, that was like charcoals and blacks and navy blues and doing all of those tones as opposed to going in like the darker browns or like the lighter browns or something like that. So like staying in that dark palette was really important for him. totally talk about a different color palette. One of the things that we thought was so interesting with the Mad Men show was kind of the collaboration with Banana Republic. And we wanted to ask about that. Like, how did, how does something like that get started? Was it someone's idea? Was it? Yeah. So they had, I guess, I guess Mad Men, Matthew Weiner, the creator, and Lionsgate AMC, like, they wanted to, like, extend I guess the marketing for like for to get people to watch. So that was one of the things that we did was we created the Mad Men collection with Banana Republic. And I worked with Simon Neen, who was the creator director there at Banana Republic. And I worked with all 50 designers at Banana Republic. It was great. I mean, we had so much fun. We we built this whole collection. It was basically built on all the characters like John Hamm and I'm sorry, I shouldn't say John Hamm. I should say Don Draper. I should say Roger Sterling and, and Betty Draper and Christina. 
no, sorry, known and Peggy. <laughs> anyway, they were all, it was all based on all the characters of the show. And I brought so many things from the show that I had designed and brought it to New York. And we looked at the collection and we like went through everything, went through all the designs. And then we came up with a modern collection. So that was really, that was really great. And we did it for three years, which was, which was a lot of fun. Yeah, that must have been a great intersection of of, of the, your current work in costuming and your initial earlier career path within the fashion industry, more commercially speaking. I, I would imagine, too, that it becomes a balancing act from you, and because you want to put as much of your characters into the collection as possible while still making a commercial, like just a dance. Yes, it was. I mean, it was like we, especially for the women, we'd like mix all three characters together and that's really like what created the new collection mm. and so that that was that was really it was like balancing out all the three characters and then like creating this one magical sort of avatar of, of yes like... thank you <laughs> yes exactly would you say that was like the biggest challenge in um, in, in doing this particular project I mean, I loved it. It was it was much more, I don't know. I mean, I liked doing the fashion design part of it. It was really fun. And also there were so many people who got to enjoy what Mad Men was about. So, I I thought it was I thought it was beautiful. It was it was much more it was I loved it because it was much more directed like in the Mad Men era. And so it it really wasn't about like oh we're just creating something new this was this was about like taking all of these pieces from all the characters and then creating a modern collection yeah but what as you speak about it, it it makes me think that for you it almost functioned as a celebration of the work that you had done and an accessibility opportunity so i think i think that's really beautiful i think so often when we hear collaboration in that sense within the fashion world and within the industry, that word's starting to lose its meaning in 2023 because there's a collaboration every five minutes. But when you think of it from a, a franchise like Mad Men, where a commercial collaboration becomes a way for not only fans, but even those who worked intimately on the project to celebrate their work and then refresh it in a way to make it available to the consumer I think that's a beautiful thing and i think that's what the best collaborations do is they act as you said before an extension of yeah. the universe into the everyday which i think is a really really fantastic thing and i really appreciate you sharing that with our audience for sure yeah. not least of which because i still have my <laughs> my powder blue madman yeah, Republic. that i mean that that jacket was designed based off the jacket that don draper wore in in Italy. Mm. Yeah, that was a, a beautiful piece for sure. It and, was, and I definitely paired it with lots of linen pants. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think that that part of it was such a great experience because I, I really did love it that people could wear Mad Men clothing. It was good. It was really fun. And like, People loved all the sweaters. Like we did like so many beautiful sweaters for the women and, and like the polo shirts for the men. And there are just like 
so many beautiful things. We had like great accessories, purses, bags. I mean, we had shoes. It was, it was beautiful. Well, it's it was neat. full spread. Yeah. Well, so much of the time, a movie or a show, like, either meets like the zeitgeist or maybe influences what's popular and what's not. And this seems like such a cool way to bridge that because I know, I mean, I was alive, this happened. Mad Men really impacted collections, what people were wearing, how they were styling their clothes. Yeah. And to like take that another step further seems like brilliant to me. I, I want to be like, why is this not happening with like every super popular big deal show? I think it's because, I, th- I mean, I don't know. It was a very specific space and time when we did it. And mm-hmm. And we did it with Banana Republic, who, who, they were amazing. They were, they loved making the collection. And it was just, I feel like maybe a lot of other brands aren't maybe there yet, or like they're not interested in doing that yet. Or maybe Mad Men was just like one specific show that really got it out there. I don't know. I mean, I have a theory. Hmm. I, I think the Mad Men universe itself lent itself to that type of collaboration because it benefits from the aesthetic nature of the period, right? This mid-century modern aesthetic. And it was done in such a way where you had such strong characters and such strong personalities whose aesthetic was mirrored in the costuming work that you, you and your team did that it was a natural extension. I think for a lot of other franchises, something like this could come off very contrived very easily. Oh, I can see that. And I think a lot of franchises probably shy away from that thing for that very reason. Although I will say, if anyone from Miss Maisel is listening, you guys would be well suited, no pun intended, to do something similar. Just saying. I think that what the thing is that the mid-century modern, that is a perfect period to do a piece on because mid-century modern is still in fashion. You know, I mean, even today. So it is like, it is it is a period in which you can really create a new collection based on that mid-century modern style. Absolutely. As with every episode, now is the time for our footnotes on part one with Emmy Award-winning customer Janie Bryant. Kicking off our footnotes is the IATSE Local 705. In part one of her interview, Janie mentions that the folks she works with are part of the Local 705. But what is that? She is referring to IATSE Local 705, the union that represents the motion picture costumers, just like her. More broadly, IATSE stands for the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, Moving Picture Technicians, Artists, and Allied Crafts of the United States, its territories, and Canada. That would be the IATSE in IATSE. Founded in 1893, when representatives of stagehands working in 11 cities met in New York and pledged to support each other's efforts to unionize for better working conditions. Something particularly relevant today, as their members stand in solidarity with fellow striking workers in the Screen Actors Guild, AFTRA, and WGA, while facing increasing financial challenges as productions stay in limbo. Our second footnote for part one of Janie Bryant's interview is Mad Men. Now, if you've seen the show by this name, you may already know that Mad Men was a term allegedly coined in the 1950s to refer to the New York City advertising executives. See, at the time, most major marketing firms had their offices on Madison Avenue, MAD being short for Madison, as the show's pilot explains. 
But researchers who had spoken to those working in Kennedy-era advertising on Madison Avenue dispute this claim. History is rarely cut and dried, after all. And lastly, the invention of the zipper. Janie mentions that in her work for The Last Tycoon, which took place in 1936, widespread commercial use of the zipper hadn't yet taken hold, which meant everything had to be done by hand. But did you know that this closure was first conceived in a basic sense all the way back in 1851 by a gentleman named Elias Howe? Now, his design was improved upon by a fellow Whitcomb Judson to much acclaim, in fact, at the 1893 World's Fair in Chicago. But just a few years later, it was further improved upon into the idea we now know as the zipper by a gentleman named Gideon Sunbeck, who also patented the machine to manufacture this modern zipper. Speaking of the word zipper, the name came from a sales campaign by the now tire company BF Goodrich that implemented the zipper on rubber galoshes for kids in the 1930s, but it wasn't widely used for about a decade due to cost implications. Zippers used to be very expensive relative to buttons, which is why they were still a much cheaper thing for things like the fly on your pants. Now, Wikipedia will tell you that Esquire had a battle of the fly comparing it to buttons, but there's actually no proof for this at all. Much like the Mad Men claim I just talked about, history, especially fashion history, is rarely so cut and dried. That's all for today's footnotes. Make sure you check out our blog at littleredfashion.com slash blog for additional resources. And don't forget, join us for part two.